Hey, this is Jerry, and welcome to the New Deal Podcast. For more rantings and ravings, head on over to thenewdeal.com. Like The New Deal on Facebook. Follow me at The Real New Deal on Twitter or The New Deal on Instagram. And you can even head over to YouTube where I've got my new minute segments. They're released multiple times each week. I try to do them daily. And if you like what you see there, please subscribe. Again, welcome to the New Deal big episode today. As I record this, we have five days, five days until the election. We're in the midst of a pandemic. Please be safe. It is the worst it has ever been. And we are seeing returns to lockdown in Europe, and they've handled this thing way better than we have all year. And they're going back to lockdown. So it may be, you know, a sign of things to come here. And while COVID has been a big issue for me, and I bring it up in every New Minute segment, and I brought it up on all the podcasts, it is not the biggest issue today. Today, we're going to focus 100% on the election. Many of the subjects I bring up in this episode could be a full episode all to themselves. So we're going to move through the content as quickly as I can. We're going to spend time on the content that matters. And hopefully, hopefully, this is not an incredibly long and boring episode. I think what I'm going to give you is some good information. uh, Hopefully some things you haven't heard before, some things you haven't thought about before. and, And try to give you a really good idea of what we can expect on Election Day to the best of my ability, and I am no oracle, and neither is anyone else, but again, to the best of my ability, given what I've read over. So, on this episode, I'm going to be talking about the polls. We're going to just brief overview of the current polls that are out there, kind of the polls that have been out there all election cycle, and we're just going to analyze to the best we can what those are looking like right now to try to see what the outcome of the election will be. And then I'll give you what I think the election outcome will be. Um, based on those polls and other reasons. I'm going to give you five things that we can feel good about right now. And then I'm going to talk about five things that we should really be worried about. And then finally, at the end of the episode or toward the end, I want to talk about the dangerous election dynamic that has been set up for this 2020 election. And I want to talk about the potential fallout due to that dangerous election dynamic. So without any further ado, let's get into the content. I want to preface this first section by saying that I spend a lot of time on the website 538.com. I feel like it's a great website if you're into polls. They do a lot of aggregate for polls. They take all all the polls across the nation. They grade them based on their reliability. They take the national average. And so you get a better picture of where the polls are in any given moment. It's better than looking at any one poll at one time. Um, They've also got a lot of projections there. So if you want to, go over to 538.com, spelled out, uh, and you'll be looking at a lot of the same things I'm looking at. I will also be posting links to all relevant content in the description for 538, for the election maps I'm looking at, for any of the information I pulled for this episode, it'll be in the description. So currently, on the current map, with the current polling, Joe Biden is up nine points, nine points nationally. Given the polling in individual states, Joe Biden would win the election today in the Electoral College with 291 electoral votes to Donald Trump's 143. And that's with Texas, Iowa, North Carolina, Georgia, and Florida all undecided. Now, if Donald Trump were to win all of those undecided states, Joe Biden would still be 21 points to the good on the Electoral College. He would still be 
you know, well above the 270 threshold. So even if all those states, Texas, Iowa, North Carolina, Georgia, and Florida, go Trump, Biden is good in regard to the polling. It would take a massive upset in a state where Biden is up literally like 10 points right now, which is well beyond anything that Hillary was down in 2016. It would take Trump flipping multiple of those states for him to win the election. And, and, and that doesn't look likely. So right now, as I'm sitting here, five days before the election, looking at this polling data, I feel relatively confident that Joe Biden will win this election. And I hope that we will get the result soon. There are multiple scenarios as to when we will get the result. But again, I think that the margins will be good enough where hopefully we get it within a day or two of election day. And I'm going to be talking a lot more about these numbers as I move on. So I don't want to bore you with it all up front. We'll work it in. So five things we can feel good about. And I want to focus here because there is a lot to feel good about. And I know that there's a lot of nervousness out there, especially on the left, because we have reason to doubt what we read based on the 2016 election. And I understand the hesitancy there. And, and so I feel like it's important to look at some of the positives and put some weight and what those positives are. So number number five, the number five thing to feel good about. Early voting numbers are historic. Over the over half, over half of the total turnout for 2016 has already count, uh, cast a ballot. 80 million votes have come in so far, which is 56% of the 2016 turnout. We are on pace for, to, to shatter voting numbers in this country. And based on that, whenever the voting numbers have been particularly high, Democrats have won because, you know, multiple studies and, and you know, polling ha has shown that the Democratic mindset, the liberal mindset is supported by the majority of Americans. So if you get the majority of Americans to vote, Democrats will likely win. Of those early ballots that have been cast, 47% have been de Democrat. 22% have been independents, 30% Republican. So it looks like we're going to have a lot of independents voting on election day. It looks like there are more independents left to vote on election day than Republicans or Democrats, because we know that a large swath of the country exists in the independent realm and only 22% of the current votes are independent. So I think we're going to see a lot of independents voting on election day. These numbers also support, I think, a real argument for a national election day, given the opportunity to vote, given the opportunity and the time to be able to cast a vote. And I know that there's a multitude of methods right now. You can do it by mail. You can do it in person early. You can do it on election day. But given the opportunity, people will vote. You know, voting turnout has been a big issue in our country. You know, like less than 50% of the, the people actually vote. But given the time, it looks like people might actually get out there. So there may be an argument to make election day a national holiday because it is our right to be able to vote and you shouldn't be forced to go to work and you shouldn't be forced to, you know, make a choice between a paycheck and in voting. That shouldn't be there. You know, if, if we're going to be a true democratic institution, uh, country, then we need to make sure that we are allowing access to those rights, the right to vote to all of our citizens. So hopefully we'll see a national election day, um, you know, hopefully in the next four years. So that come 2024, 
you know, that first Tuesday in November will be a national holiday. And maybe we'll see similar numbers for votes, maybe from here on out. So that is number five. Early voting numbers are historic. There's enthusiasm out there. People are voting. It's great to see. Number four, something to feel good about. The polling has remained consistent throughout this contest. Joe Biden has consistently held a seven-point lead or greater, and he hasn't dropped below 6.9 points since mid-June. So July, August, September, so for four months, Joe Biden has not dropped below a 6.9% lead. At this point in 2016, Hillary was up 3.9 points. Joe Biden is currently up nine points. Joe Biden has five points of cushion over Hillary Clinton, and Hillary Clinton won the popular vote. So this is something to feel good about. I know that there is a lot of hesitation, especially on the left, about what polling data indicates. I showed on the podcast a couple of weeks ago that the pollsters have updated the way that they poll and the way that they weight the polls and how they make up for education levels and age levels and things like that to make sure that the polls are more balanced. So in 2020, not only do we have an updated polling process, but the polls have been more consistent. Remember in 2016, James Comey dropped that FBI investigation like a week and a half to two weeks before the election. And polls take time to catch up. So even by election day, polls may not have accurately reflected the damage that that did to Hillary Clinton. So even though she had a 3.9% lead on election day, we don't actually know the fallout, the full fallout of the Comey investigation, dropping that news two weeks prior. We are now five days out. I don't think we're going to get any more surprises from Donald Trump or Joe Biden. I think we're, we're on course here going into the weekend. If anything does come out, it will be tomorrow. It'll be on a Friday. I don't see it happening. I think we're going to maintain course here. So the polling has been consistent, which leads me to the number three thing I think that we can feel good about, which is that Joe Biden has multiple paths to victory. This gets a little complicated. I spent a little bit of, uh, I spent, I spent a lot of time on this. I really like the, I really, really enjoy the interactive election maps where you can like change all the colors and you can mess around with all the states. So I've, I've got like the polling up on one side of the screen. I've got my map on the other side of the screen and I'm clicking all over the place. And I'm changing the outcomes and, you know, giving like weird states to weird people just to kind of see how it plays out. And, and, and this is, this is how I spend my life, but it is fun. But it is fun. So if you if you want to go check out some of the interactive maps, they're, they're they're fun to play around with. All other typical blue states that I'm about to mention, or rather that I don't mention, uh, beginning with New Hampshire, Biden has a 10 point lead in. So any states I don't mention from New Hampshire and all the others like Rhode Island, Massachusetts, Joe Biden has at least a 10 point lead there. So I'm not going to be talking about those states. I'm going to be talking about the states that are from Minnesota sorry, Michigan and Minnesota through the battleground states into some of the slightly red states. So what are what is Biden's path to victory? What does he need to do? Some polling data. In Michigan, Joe Biden is currently up eight points nationally on average. What I mean by nationally is they take all the national polls, they take all the polls that are done and they aggregate them. So these are Michigan polls. These are polls done in Michigan and those polls are aggregated to get the eight point lead average. 
Some sh polls show it less. Some polls show it more. In Minnesota, he has an eight-point lead. In Wisconsin, he has an eight-and-a-half-point lead, and Biden will actually be visiting Wisconsin on Friday. Remember in 2016, Wisconsinites were upset that Hillary Clinton did not visit Wisconsin. Joe Biden will be in Wisconsin again this Friday. I guess that's another thing to feel good about, but it's, it's a little one. It's a minor one. We'll leave it there. Joe Biden has a six-and-a-half-point lead in Nevada, where there is currently a lawsuit, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. And he's up 5.2 points in Pennsylvania. If Joe Biden wins all the Democratic states that he has a 10-point lead or greater in, and he wins Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin, which he's eight points or above at, if he wins Nevada, which he's six and a half points up on, and if he wins Pennsylvania, which he's up 5.2 points on, he will win the Electoral College 274 to 264, and that gives Donald Trump every other state. But here's why we can feel good about that. Joe Biden also has a three and a half point lead in Arizona. He has a two and a half point lead in North Carolina. He has a one and a half point lead in Florida. Now that number is a little bit interesting because it does show the race tightening, but I do want to point out that over the last four months, Joe Biden has had an average of a four point lead in Florida. So even though it looks like it's tightening up there, the historical data the last couple of months shows Biden that might have a bigger lead there. I'm going to stick to the one and a half. Florida is always a wild card. I'm not going to put anything on Florida. And he also has a 1.7 point lead in Georgia. He's even with Donald Trump in Iowa. Uh, Joe Biden could actually lose Pennsylvania. And so long as he carries any one of those states I listed, if he gets Arizona, if he gets North Carolina, if he gets Florida, if he gets Georgia, if he gets any one, any one of those states, he can lose Pennsylvania and still win the election. And again, that assumes all the, all the ones that he's up like six and eight to 10 points, he, he carries those as well. And the polling would have to be ridiculous. Like the polling would have to be off to an extent that would basically make polling a joke from here on out. Because if polls are wrong in 2016, well, you've heard my take on this before, but if the polls gave the impression that they were not correct in 2016, and then in 2020, when the polls have been more precise, more clear, more consistent, if the polls fail us now, there might be something wrong. And I'll get into that a little bit later in the episode as well. But it just doesn't seem like it could be likely that leads of this magnitude could diminish to a Trump win. So again, even if he loses Pennsylvania, as long as he wins Arizona, North Carolina, Florida, Georgia, or Iowa, any one of those, it's a Biden win. I'm going to post a link down in the description. I'm going to title it the worst case win for Biden, and it will show you one of the fun interactive maps that I like to use with exactly this scenario. And then you can play around with it from there with, with the states that I mentioned. So that is my number three. Number two, the number two thing that we can feel good about is the Lincoln Project. And a little bit more here, but just generally speaking, the Lincoln Project has been a force in this election. Uh, I went to their Twitter page. Their Twitter page came up in December of 2019. They have 2.6 million Twitter followers in, in a year and 768,000 likes on Facebook, again, in under a year. They have put ads out against Trump. 
They're a group of Republicans who refuse to vote for Donald Trump, and they also acknowledge that Donald Trump has destroyed some of our democratic institutions. Uh, the way he's handled himself, things like violating the Hatch Act, the way that he's tried to strong arm the Senate, even with some of the Supreme Court picks, they have taken exception to not only his behavior, but also to his disrespect for a lot of the democratic institutions in this country. The Lincoln Project has been huge, to the point where Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, I believe, are trying to sue them for an ad that they put up in Times Square, New York, that just has them, it's literally an ad with Jared Kushner quoting, uh, with a quote from Jared Kushner from in earlier this year in Vanity Fair, basically saying that coronavirus, you know, is New Yorkers problem and how they deal with it. And they're suing the Lincoln Project over this ad, which I don't understand because he said it. So I don't know. I don't know how you get, get around that. But anyway, they have been a force in this election, which brings me to, you know, I'm not going to say it's a completely different point, but a related point is that there's a lot of Republicans out there who seem to be on the Biden bandwagon. There's a Hill article that I'm going to post below, and it talks about the silent Biden voter. So in 2016, you had this concept and, you know, the silent majority and all that other crap, but you had this idea that Donald Trump was so different and so offensive that Trump voters would not admit that they were going to vote for Donald Trump. But I want you to think about the last four years since he was elected. Trump supporters are now extremely loud everywhere they are. Never in my life have I seen people flying the flag of a political candidate. They're on the back of trucks. They're in people's yards. They're like banner. There's a banner up the street here hanging on a fence that literally says like, you know, no more bullshit or something like that. Like literally it says that on a sign, on a fence, you know, in a neighborhood, residential neighborhood with kids, you know, good on you. But Trump supporters are loud and they're loud on social media. And the vitriol and hatred that comes from a lot of these people on social media is beyond anything that we have seen with past Republican candidates. And so Democrats have been largely silent. Even, you know, the far left, I think, has been silent on some of these really important issues. And some of that silence is in response to some of the unabated fanaticism that Trump supporters have. Some of the rhetoric out there, you know, it's not just, oh, you're a socialist. We're talking about like calls for communism now, things that like border on McCarthyism. There's this othering there. There's this you know, demonization of the left. It's not just a political disagreement, it's a demonization. And so that attitude by Trump supporters has created, and this Hill article talks about it, what might be the silent Biden supporter. People who voted for Trump in 2016 who don't want to admit to their friends or their families who are super pro-Trump and very loud about it that they're leaning toward Joe Biden. Uh, there's a quote in that article from a Florida voter who says, I'm not coming out and saying it, in response to supporting Biden, but I'm allowing people to connect the dots. So, and he says he knows a lot of people like that, and they interviewed some other people who alluded to the same kind of thing. So it'll be interesting to see if the polls swing the other way, if Biden's lead is actually greater than the polls have shown. Further, and we're still on, you know, the idea of the Lincoln Project and kind of their movement, high-profile Republicans back Joe Biden. George W. Bush backs Joe Biden. And I didn't like George W. Bush, but we're talking about a past Republican president supporting a Democratic candidate. Secretary of State Colin Powell. John Kasich, governor of Ohio, ran for president in 2016 against Donald Trump, supports Joe Biden. 
George Conway, husband of Trump's longtime aide Kelly Conway, Kellyanne Conway, supports Joe Biden and is part of the Lincoln Project. And Michael Steele, the former chair of the Republican National Committee, is supporting Joe Biden. These are not small names. These are high-profile former leaders of the Republican Party who have thrown their support behind Joe Biden, the Democratic candidate. It's unheard of. It's unheard of for this many people from a different party and people who are that high profile to throw their support behind the presidential candidate from the other party. And I think that's significant. So that is the number two thing we can feel good about. The Lincoln Project and then Republican support for Joe Biden. It's out there. It's real. And it's got some high profile names behind it. And the number one thing that we can feel good about, the number one thing that should make you feel good is Joe Biden himself. The bar was set extremely low for Joe Biden, and that bar was largely set by Donald Trump and the Republicans. They tried to paint him as old and forgetful and sleepy, and then early on here, like, you know, just hiding in the basement. They set the bar low. Their attacks made him seem weak and feeble, and Joe Biden has proved them wrong at every turn. In both debates, Joe Biden was sharp. He was focused on policy. His retention of numbers and statistics was on point. He was impressive. He did not look like someone who was forgetful or sleepy or anything that Donald Trump painted him to be. And Donald Trump, in contrast, looked annoyed. He looked angry. He was red in the face. He was disruptive. Biden has also been masterful at avoiding Donald Trump's attacks. Trump has been able to make very little stick to Joe Biden as far as negative ads or conspiracies. And a lot of this is due to Joe Biden's record, because despite the fact that they say he's been in for 47 years and done nothing, he's passed substantial legislation in that time. He's also not responsible for all the happenings of every administration over the last 47 years, Democrat or Republican. Uh, You know, Joe Biden was not in charge of the United States of America for 47 years, but they haven't been able to make anything stick. And the other part of that is Joe Biden is willing to admit that he made mistakes. And I think this has been crucial because all the things that Trump has tried to pin him on, Biden has said, listen, I was wrong about that. Yeah, I voted for that years ago and I was wrong. And I acknowledge I was wrong and I know why I'm wrong. Here's why I was wrong. And here's the policy that I'm going to be putting forth in my presidency to remediate some of the issues that the legislation I voted for previously caused. In a way that Donald Trump seems to be incapable of, Joe Biden can take ownership of what he's done in the past, admit mistakes, say he's sorry, and pose valuable solutions or or viable solutions, seemingly viable. You know, Donald Trump doesn't apologize for anything. And I think this resonates with those independent voters or those Republican voters who have been really put off by Trump. Things like ownership of your mistakes and admitting you were wrong and seeming like a human being and not trying to be perfect all the time. So I feel really good about Joe Biden. He has surprised me as a candidate. He was not in my top four or five for people who I thought should be president during the Democratic primary. But I got to say, all the things that, you know, political pundits said Joe Biden had going for him, like mass voter appeal, He's, he's capitalized on that, and he has managed to straddle the Democratic agenda in a way that is universally appealing to people on the left. 
He's incorporated enough progressive ideas in his agenda and then spoke about those ideas passionately to bring in the youth and keep people like myself, you know, on board with his campaign in a semi-enthusiastic way. But he also appeals to the moderates. He also appeals to independents. He clearly appeals to many Republicans. So I feel really good about Joe Biden. So those are my five things I think that we can feel good about. I think we can feel good about the early voting numbers. I think we can feel good about the polling. I feel good about Joe Biden's path to victory. I feel good about the fact that so many Republicans are willing to vote for Joe Biden. And then I feel good about Joe Biden. There's a lot to feel good about. But there are also things that we need to worry about. And I feel like, you know, maybe people have been waiting for this a little bit more than the five things to be happy about. But let's get into those. The number five reason is an obvious reason. And that is, I'm worried about small margins in states with ballots where the votes can be counted late. So there are states out there where ballots can be accepted up to like a week or 12 days after election day. And if we have a small margin of victory or seeming victory for either candidate in any of those states where the ballots counted after the fact might make the difference, that is fuel to the fire for an already divided nation. And for a nation who has been being told for over a year that this election might be rigged and everything else. You know, the amount of doubt that has been cast on the election process by the sitting president of the United States is unbelievable. But those small margins will play to that conspiracy. Those small margins will get the far right up in arms, especially if the vote swings from a Trump-seeming victory to a Biden victory. So I'm really worried about those states where the small margins might exist. We're talking Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, uh, I think Pennsylvania is at play there. And some of those states have, you know, the late voting. So we, we, we need to be careful there. Which brings me to point number four, things we need to be worried about. And I think this is a real concern because it's happened in the past. Number four is news networks making calls too early. In 2000, in Bush Gore, it all came down to Florida. And we all remember that. But I think what a lot of people don't remember, or people that my age maybe weren't paying attention to at the time, was that in 2000, around 7.55 p.m., NBC called Al Gore the winner in Florida. Because of the competitive nature of, you know, network news, all the other networks followed suit in declaring Al Gore the winner. So at 8 o'clock p.m., Al Gore was the winner in Florida. And, you know, by that logic, looked to be probably the next president of the United States. Two hours later, almost exactly two hours later, CNN changed their prediction and moved Florida to too close to call, taking back the Al Gore victorious, you know, impression. And all the other networks, again, followed suit very quickly. So. Within two hours, you have all the networks saying that Gore wins, and then you have all the networks saying too close to call. They all follow suit. Four hours later, well into the early morning hours, Fox News called George Bush the winner of Florida. And again, all the other networks followed suit. So in a span of eight hours, you had Gore the winner, back to too close to call, to a Bush winner. And then it wasn't resolved there. As we all know, you know, that went to the Supreme Court. You know, we had the whole hanging chads thing, which ballots should be counted. Al Gore graciously 
accepted defeat, though he could have gone further for the good of the democracy, and George W. Bush became president. Networks clamoring to make the first call is going to be really dangerous in 2020. And what's different in 2020 that wasn't necessarily the case in 2000 is Fox News, because Fox News has been in the president's pocket for the better part of five years. And Fox News may be compelled to make those early calls in Trump's favor in order to bolster Donald Trump's case for a voter fraud or to, you know, compel court cases forward when late ballots change the races. Fox News being so pro-Trump really, really worries me. Because if you have a situation where Fox News is declaring Florida and Georgia and North Carolina and you know, any of the other states early for Donald Trump, it is setting up an entire faction of the nation to be upset, pissed off, disappointed if those races should change based on mail-in balloting or, you know, late vote counting. And I just don't think that we had to worry about that too much in 2000. Now, I hope that the team responsible for making the calls at Fox News just makes them like all the other networks and is not pressured in any way, shape, or form by the higher-ups to like push it a certain way. But I do think it's an outlier. And I think, as awful as it might be, I think we all need to keep our eye on Fox News on election night. I think all of the other networks, top to bottom, will be in line. I think with, with the AP, AP, NPR, CNN, you know, CBS, NBC, ABC. I think they will all be in line. I think Fox would be the only one to move. I don't know if Fox calls a race if everyone will follow, but we'll see. It's it's a variable that we, I don't think, have really had to worry about before in an election. It's happened before, but I don't think it's something we've had to actively worry about going into election night. So that is number four. Number three is voter suppression and the post office. The GOP has sued in multiple states in order to restrict voting. The GOP does not like when people vote, so they've sued. In Nevada, the GOP currently has a lawsuit undecided. They're suing the Las Vegas County because they're upset that they don't have enough observation of the people who are counting the votes to verify the signatures on the ballots. They're upset they want to have more access and more coverage, so they're suing uh, Las Vegas and, and the, the county to stop all ballot counting so that they can get more observers in there. And this would make Nevada another one of those states that we might have to worry about because if they stop counting the votes, then that's going to push the final count to the right. And Nevada may be another state that we're anxiously awaiting results from past election day. In Michigan, the GOP sued to allow armed citizens to go to the polling places. And we talked about this a little bit before. Voter intimidation tactics or groups showing up at the polls and just sitting there trying to intimidate people out of voting. The GOP won that case. In Michigan, armed citizens can go hang out at the polls. Great. In Pennsylvania, the GOP sued to stop the extended deadline on the receipt of mail-in ballots. They lost that. So ballots can be received in Pennsylvania past election day, so long as I believe they're postmarked by election day. In Wisconsin, they sued to stop the extended deadline of mail-in ballots, and they won. So in Wisconsin, any mail-in ballot not received by, I believe, 8 p.m. on election night will not count. 
And I just want you to think about that. We live in what's supposedly the most democratic country in the world. But we're literally saying that if you mailed your vote a week before election, and by whatever, you know, for whatever reason, the post office does not deliver your ballot to the Board of Elections, your vote just doesn't count. You've lost your voice because your mail was not delivered in a timely fashion and you had no control over it. Yes, you could have gone to a Dropbox, but you should be able to rely on your post office to get your ballot to the Board of Elections quickly. And I hope that the USPS will be expediting all mail-in ballots and prioritizing them over any other piece of mail. Anything else. I really hope that's the case. On the Rachel Maddow show last night, she was talking about how in states like Michigan and Wisconsin, mail has slowed down between 40 and 60% which is unacceptable moving into an election, but we know that Louis DeJoy was appointed in July. We know that there was a very intentional act to slow the mail, and now it could have real consequences on this election because of lawsuits like what we've seen in Wisconsin. In North Carolina, they sued over the same thing. They lost. Mail-in ballots in North Carolina can be accepted past the deadline. And a lot of these decisions are based... I know it seems contradictory for... Pennsylvania, North Carolina to win, Wisconsin to lose, but a lot of it has to do with who is suing who and what the current state laws are and what they what they call for, and everything is a little bit different. In Texas, the GOP sued to keep only one drop box in each county, including the largest Democratic stronghold, which is the county of 4.7 million people. And I talked about this on the podcast two weeks ago. You're talking about an area four times the state of Rhode Island with one ballot drop box. And if there were only one drop box in Rhode Island, it would be hell on earth. It would deadlock traffic the whole state. I guarantee it. I just guarantee it. And I can't imagine what millions of people trying to get to one location in the Houston area could look like. And it's, honestly, I think it's treasonous. I think any effort to, to stop access to voting it's treasonous, especially if you have the ability to make it easier. They had other drop boxes in place. There's nothing wrong with having the other drop boxes in place. Removing them is, is solely to limit votes, and I really do think it should be a punishable offense when government officials try to do stuff like that. It doesn't make sense. It's pointless, it's pointed, and it's nefarious. There's no way around it. So I've already said that in in many battleground states, the mail is moving 40 to 60% slower, and that those ballots that were mailed well in advance of the election may not be counted. There are 27 states that require the mail-in ballots to be with the Board of Elections by the deadline of Election Day. 27. Arizona, Oklahoma, Colorado, Connecticut, and Delaware. Florida, Georgia, Hawaii, Idaho, Indiana, Kentucky, Massachusetts, Missouri. Michigan, Montana, Nebraska, New Hampshire, New Mexico, Oklahoma, Oregon, Rhode Island, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Vermont, Wisconsin, and Wyoming all require that your mail-in ballot be with the Board of Elections on election night or it will not be counted. You may have noticed that some of the states in there are important states. Arizona, Florida, Georgia, Michigan, Wisconsin. I also mentioned earlier in the episode that 47% of the ballots cast so far have been Democrat which means that the people that are most likely to be hurt by slow mail or, you know, missing a deadline by no fault of their own will likely be Democratic voters in key battleground states. Something to keep an eye on, but that is why voter suppression in the post office is my number three. 
My number two concern, the number two thing we should all be worried about is the election going to the Supreme Court. And this means that there'll be lawsuits coming from each state about late ballots being counted or, you know, ballots being misplaced or, you know, ballots not having correct signatures, whatever. Most importantly, we want to look in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Wisconsin, Nevada, Georgia, Florida, all places where you've seen some lawsuits already. It is important to note that Amy Coney Barrett in her, in her confirmation hearing would not commit would not say that she thought a president must leave office if they lose. She, would, she was unwilling to commit to that, which is common sense. It, it, it's obvious, and she wouldn't commit to it. And this is why we're concerned. Further, Justice Barrett, Chief Justice John Roberts, and Brett Kavanaugh all worked on the Bush v. Gore case in 2000 on George Bush's side to help him win the presidency. So should the election go to the Supreme Court, which is now a six to three conservative supermajority, with three justices who have already shown that they were, you know, were willing to at least work on a case in favor of a Republican president back in 2000. And the fact that Donald Trump has now appointed three of these justices makes anything going to the Supreme Court really, really tricky. Something that anyone in the middle or to the left, or even to the right, should be worried about. Because we may see, and I mentioned this again a couple of weeks ago, we may see the Supreme Court ruling or making rulings that are traditionally unconstitutional. We may have the body that is supposed to protect the Constitution making unconstitutional rulings. So we need to be careful. And the way we avoid that is by just winning big. Just go win big, get the margins out there, go vote. I'm going to say it again at the episode, end of the episode. Go vote. If you haven't already, go vote. Try not to mail it, drop it in a drop box, vote on election day, vote early in person, go vote. And my number one concern is Donald Trump refusing to vacate the office if he loses. Now, this is only a concern because it's never happened before. I do think that there's enough people in the United States who value our country and our ideals enough to make sure that he is forcibly removed. At that point, Joe Biden would have won the popular vote and the Electoral College. So Donald Trump would have no reason to remain in office other than he doesn't want to relinquish power. If he wanted to stay in office, he would have to do so by force, which means that he would have to have some arm of the military on his side. So a, a small group of, you know, small militia or whatever, or a small group of senators, that, that's not enough. Donald Trump would have to have the power of the military be behind him in order for him to stay in office. And I just don't believe that any faction in the military would back a president refusing to leave office after they have lost both the popular vote and the Electoral College. So it's a concern because it's a possibility. He hasn't committed to leaving office. It's a concern because it's never happened before and we don't have a roadmap. But I also think it's highly unlikely that that scenario will play out in a way that we really have to worry about. But it is my number one. So all of that brings me to the final segment, which is the dangerous dynamic that is at play in this election. And it is dangerous. And it's dangerous because it's unprecedented. And like I said just a minute ago, we don't have a roadmap for some of or many of the scenarios that may play out. Over the last year especially, Donald Trump has methodically, systematically, intentionally laid the groundwork for his supporters that should he lose, it's because the election has been rigged. How has he done it? 
Well, he said they're trying to rig the election. He said it multiple times. He said that people are going to commit voter fraud. They're going to try to vote twice. He then turned around and instructed his voters to try to vote twice, just to see if they could get away with it. He's come out and tried to say that, you know, somehow there's foreign influence coming into the Biden campaign. And luckily, there's been very little talk of foreign influence this election cycle to the extent that there was in 2016, although it is there from Iran and from Russia, uh, I believe especially, but it hasn't taken on the same characteristics that it did in 2016, which I think is good. Although we'll see. Again, we don't know. You've now seen the lawsuits in states trying to mitigate some of Americans, America's vote. They've in fact sued in nearly every battleground state where extended lines were put in place and that are also battle, battlegrounds that are likely to swing the election. That's not an accident. They're not suing in Rhode Island. They're not suing in Wyoming. They're not suing in Alabama. They're suing in Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, in North Carolina, in Nevada. Battleground states where they want to try to take away some of the votes. Likely because they don't think that their message resonates with the majority of people there. So the only way that they feel like they can win is if they somehow mitigate some of the vote. Bolstering the strategy to cause mistrust in the system is the fact that more Democrats have requested mail-in or absentee ballots, meaning that states may appear to give Trump a win on election night only to be turned over. And again, states should not be called. States should not be called by any network. It would be irresponsible of any network. It would be damaging to the democracy for any network to call a state unless the margin of victory at the time they call it is insurmountable, whether they know that there are so many votes left in a specific county or they know the number of mail-in ballots that are remaining and, and it's not enough to make up the ground. They cannot make that call. That is the most dangerous thing that they can do. And if you want Donald Trump to get more ammunition about fake media and left-wing media and everything else, all of which are not true, but if, if you want to give his supporters another reason to make those claims, having all the stations but Fox News make a call for a Democrat and then potentially flip for a Republican is like the worst possible outcome we can see. So it, it can't happen. The groundwork has been laid on all of these fronts. Voter fraud, the, the, the idea that mail-in ballots can somehow be massively fraudulent, even though it's been a practice in this country for, for decades. The fact that there's issues about people going to the polls, but then Donald Trump has called for people with guns to be poll watchers. The, he, he, he has sown distrust in such a way that his supporters are willing to take up arms to go to the polls because they feel like they're supporting some great cause when really they're just damaging another democratic institution. Given the setup, from the democratic perspective, polls were leading in 2016. They weren't necessarily wrong. There's a lot to look at there. You have, you have votes for like the popular vote, then you have votes at the state level, then you get the margin of error. A lot of the, the states were within the margin of error and, and went to Trump even though Clinton was leading, but within the margin of error. But the national vote, the national tally was correct. So if we want to rely on a number, the one number that we should be able to rely on right now is the fact that Joe Biden has a nine-point lead nationally in the popular vote. That is true. Just like Hillary Clinton had the three-point lead nationally in 2016, and that was true. So we need to just put faith, put stock in that one number of any number, because 
I believe early on they said if Joe Biden has a seven point lead nationally, his chance of winning losing is like less than 10%. And I believe he has like an 89% chance to win right now based on, you know, again, 538. Polls in 2020 have been extremely steady. But a Trump win, if, if Donald Trump wins the election, it may provoke serious doubt because the chance of the polls being that wrong two cycles in a row is basically zero. Especially in a year where the polls have been consistent, relatively unchanging, extremely methodical, reported regularly, for, for, for that to happen two years in a row would make me feel like there might be something wrong. It will cause Democrats and people on the left or anyone who voted for Joe Biden to speculate that there is something deeper going on here because it's simply extremely improbable that that outcome could play out. Further, the post office have been intentionally altered to slow the return of mail-in ballots with mail traveling 40 to 6%, 60% behind schedule in battleground states. The GOP has systematically worked to remove the ability to vote from millions of qualified Americans, which again is treasonous in my view. This, this is purging voter rolls or telling people that they don't have a right to vote because, you know, they were purged and they didn't re-register, but they weren't informed or, you know, the address is, is off by a letter or whatever reason. The GOP likes to restrict voting rights, and they have continued to do so over this election cycle. Further, playing into this dynamic, this divisiveness, this distrust, two Supreme Court seats have been tainted by political scheming. Regardless of whatever the technical legitimacy of their appointments may be, two of those seats were tainted by the, the, the impression that they were stolen. And that's on Mitch McConnell, and that's on the GOP. It's also on the Democrats for having no balls and not standing up for themselves. And again, I will always, be, I will always hold that against the Obama administration in 2016. They didn't fight hard enough. Water under the bridge. So two seats tainted by the political scheming. And then you have a third seat that was and will likely remain tainted by the fact that the justice appointed to that seat had a very serious sexual assault allegation levied against him. And further, his accuser sat on national television and testified before the nation of her experience and was found to be extremely credible, even by the people who appointed Kavanaugh to the court. Which gets me back to a lot of the integrity things I talk about, about how politicians, especially on the right, have no integrity because they're willing to put someone on the Supreme Court who had a very serious sexual allegation levied against them when there are myriad other candidates they could have put up who were just as conservative as Kavanaugh. Which, which I still do not understand to this day. Just put someone else up. But three Supreme Court seats, tainted in some way, due to the SCOTUS appointments above, the following are in jeopardy from the Democratic perspective. A woman's right to choose, Roe v. Wade. Healthcare. And healthcare includes pre-existing conditions. If, if the court overturns the ACA in November, pre-existing protection goes away. Remember, pregnancy is a pre-existing condition for women, and COVID-19 is a pre-existing condition as of this year. And millions of people have in this country, which has massively mishandled this pandemic, have contracted COVID-19 and will have a newly found pre-existing condition. People of all ages, young, old, in between. People under the age of 26 who are covered under their parents' insurance will no longer be covered. So if you're, you're between, you know, 18 and 26 and you can vote, you're going to lose your health insurance under your parents. You're going to have to pay for it yourself or you're just not going to have it. And on top of all that, millions just suddenly will not have health insurance, 
which means that the taxpayers are going to have to pick up the emergency room bills. Premiums are going to go up because there's less people paying into the pool. It won't be good. Roe v. Wade in healthcare. LGBTQ rights. Gay marriage is at stake. And anti-discrimination laws that protect the LGBTQ community from discrimination. Those are at stake. And voting rights are at stake. The conservative court stripped the Voting Rights Act and further allowed, through Citizens United, dark money into politics. And there's no reason to believe that this new court will rule any differently. This court is going to rule always for the most restrictive measures for voting and will always prop up corporate voice, corporate power over the power of your everyday American citizen. So from the perspective of the left, there's a lot of distrust. So you have Donald Trump setting up an election cycle where if he doesn't win, it's rigged and has laid out a ton of reasons to his supporters to get them fired up and make them think that the left is doing something where if he loses, we must have rigged it. And they believe him. They believe him. Go look at social media. Just go look at social media. I know that people say like, oh, don't, don't go to social media. It's not good for you. Oh, you shouldn't read that. You shouldn't engage in it. Those are real people and they vote. They vote and they're scary because they believe everything he says. They don't question it. They just believe. I don't know what Donald Trump has done to make them trust him so much, so quickly, so emphatically, but they trust him and they will do and believe whatever he says. And then on the left, you have the distrust of a USPS that has been intentionally altered to slow the mail and to make sure that certain amount of votes don't count. You have the knowledge that the GOP has sued in battleground states, again, to make sure a certain number of votes don't count. You have Supreme Court seats that were, at a minimum, filled in extremely unorthodox ways that did not seem entirely on the up and up or in the best interest of the American people at large. Just the process. Never mind who's in the seat, just the process. And due to those Supreme Court decisions, you have everything I just read off at stake from the left. Everybody is scared on both sides. And that is a dangerous dynamic, which leads me to the possibility of civil unrest or, and I know this is going to sound extreme, civil war in the United States post-election. Contrary to most opinion, I think the greatest chance of civil unrest is with a Trump win, not a Biden win. Here's why. Democrats have won the last six out of seven popular votes. In a country of 330 million people, we've had the majority six out of seven of the last presidential elections. That's not a fluke. That's not an accident. The majority of people in this country lean left. I'm not saying that they're all liberals. I'm not saying that they're all progressives. I'm not saying that they're all AOC. I'm saying that they lean left. And the votes show that further. Polling in the last two elections have favored Democrats. And in 2020, again, very heavily, Biden has an 88% chance to win, sorry, 89% chance to win based on the polls. Democrats are shown to have a 76% chance to flip the Senate. These are not small margins. These are not within the margin of error. These are wide declarative margins. If Trump wins, it just doesn't make sense. It just won't make sense. 
I'm not t- talking hypothetically. I'm saying if Donald Trump wins this election and next week we find out Donald Trump is the winner, it literally will not make sense. Numerically, it will not make sense. And again, it is nearly impossible for the polling to be that far off two years, two cycles in a row. But not only two cycles, the, the, the polls have been extremely steady and reliable. And you know that the Trump campaign is putting stock in it because they are running scared. And you can see it in the way that they're campaigning. You can see it in the way Donald Trump has reacted. He's not anything close to what he was in 2016 as far as public disposition. And then the threats to Democrats are not just small threats. The threats to Democrats are existential threats. They're not simply matters of policy. They are at risk of losing their health insurance, their right to be healthy, their right to live healthy lives. They're losing the right to marry those that they love when they have been recently, finally given that chance, when they thought their country finally had their back. They're losing the right to have a safe abortion, no matter the circumstances, whether it's because it was an accidental pregnancy or because there's a health risk there. They're losing their right to have a safe abortion, opening the door for a lot of unsafe abortion practices, and not to mention accidental pregnancies and abortion rates and things like that go way down under Democratic administrations because Democratic administrations make sure that kids are educated about their reproductive systems and about birth control. And hey, sex is a thing and it's going to happen because you're, you're going to grow up and have sex with someone and you need to know about what the dangers of that are. The Democrats educate. The Republicans want abstinence. Still crazy. And further, it is the Democrats, not the Republicans, who fear having their voting rights stripped or restricted. And then there's the knowledge that deregulation in the environment is going to exacerbate global warming, which is an existential threat to all humanity. And just look what happened this week with the opening up of federal lands in Alaska to be logged when deforestation is a massive issue in the climate crisis. And then you've got the deregulation of campaign and finance laws. That means that more dark money is going to pour into politics. More dark money is going to come into the political system and the court system. And we're going to have more irresponsible behavior on Wall Street, similar to what we saw in 2008. A lot of those practices that are going to cause bubbles, that are going to cause crashes, that are going to cause economic depressions. That's what deregulation is going to open the door to. And just to go back to the polls being improbable, right now the polls have Trump winning the popular vote 3% of the time. Donald Trump has a 3% chance to win the popular vote. Three. Biden has a 97% chance to win the popular vote. Donald Trump has a 2% chance to win more than 50% of the popular vote. He has a less than 1% chance to win in a landslide landslide, compared to Joe Biden's 30% to win in a landslide. Conversely, Donald Trump has less than 1% chance in winning the popular vote, but then losing the Electoral College. Joe Biden, however, has an 8% chance to win the popular vote and lose the Electoral College, which means in 8 out of every 100 simulations, Joe Biden would carry the majority of the country and still lose the presidency, which is problematic. These numbers are too large. These margins are too large for something to flip. They're too big. I'm not trying to invoke paranoia. I'm not trying to instill mass distrust. 
I'm saying when you look at the numbers from an academic standpoint, if you look at them academically, if you look at them critically, if you look at the methods behind them, they are too large. The margins are too large. So for, for Democrats, there are existential threats with a Trump victory in a way that Republicans simply don't face those same types of existential threats. They're worried about the Second Amendment, but Democrats have never taken the guns and they've never implied they want to take the guns. The worst that's happened is an assault weapons ban and self-protection can be achieved with a handgun or a shotgun or a standard rifle and a variety of other means. And even when the assault weapons ban was in place, the Second Amendment stood tall and was enforced. Despite fear-mongering, Democrats have never tried to stifle religious freedom. Democrats just don't want your religious zealotry in our government institutions. No thank you. It doesn't belong there. We have separation of church and state. Your religious views should not be pushed upon anybody because religion you have the right to practice it in this country. You have a right to do so privately. You have a right to do so with your organization. You can have your church. But when it comes to government, no thank you. Check your religion at the door. They don't have to fear for their health care. They don't have to fear for their right to vote. They don't need to fear about whether or not they can marry who they love. And, and, and that might seem like, oh, oh yeah, yeah, they do. They need to worry about it. But they don't because they support these restrictions. They want the ACA repealed. They want restrictions on voting. They want restrictions on marriage equality. So they're not affected by them. They are largely unaffected by these restrictions. The restrictions they are pushing don't affect them, which is why it's so easy for them to push them. The worst that's going to happen if Donald Trump is, if Donald Trump loses, the worst that might happen to Republicans, the biggest thing on the line for Republicans is that they might have to go back to being quieter in their racism and their xenophobia. They might need to be a little bit more respectful on social media. They might need to tone it down a little bit because slowly but surely, the ideas of respect and civility and professionalism are going to creep back in in the same way that acting and saying offensive things and divisive things has crept in over the last four years. That's, what, that's what's at stake for Republicans. They're going to tell you about taxes. They're going to tell you about all this other stuff, but, the, but taxes are not existential. A 1% or 2% increase or decrease on your taxes is not existential. Whether or not you can go see the doctor, that's an existential crisis. Whether or not you can go, you know, have reproductive health care, that is an existential problem. Whether regulations that protect our planet are repealed in the midst of a climate crisis is an existential threat. Your 1% or 2% tax rate is not an existential threat. Get over it. Get over the money. Just get over the money. There are more important things in this life than money. Yes, we need money to survive, but money should not be more important than the well-being of another person. And when you're taking away the means of those people to live healthy, happy lives in the way that they choose to do so, you are pushing your views upon them. For what? For what policy? for tax cuts, and for corporate incentive. Because that's what the GOP stands for. I digress. So I think there's more at stake in this country if Donald Trump wins this election because I think the Democrats have far more to be upset about than Republicans do. The only reason Republicans would be upset about a Joe Biden victory is because Donald Trump has told them that this election is rigged. From a policy standpoint, from a political standpoint, 
They have almost nothing to lose. They have six Supreme Court justices now. They have the tax cut that they wanted. They've got the deregulation that they wanted. And yes, Joe Biden will tighten those things back up and he will ask for a little bit more responsibility in our government as our president, but they are not going to lose existential freedoms. Now, is it possible that if Joe Biden wins that the 20 to 30% of Trump voters are going to throw a fit? Yes. Are they going to take to the streets and burn some stuff? Yes. Are they going to justify it because they're going to say that the Black Lives Matter crew did it? Yes, that's exactly what they're going to say. Be prepared for that. Brush it off because they're, they're just going to be acting like crybabies at that point. They haven't lost anything. Nothing for them is at stake. They are not in any kind of danger in a Joe Biden presidency because Joe Biden is going to be a president for all Americans, not just for those who voted for him, unlike Donald fucking Trump, who is obsessed with his supporters and cares nothing about the people that don't vote for him. He isn't even willing to support Republican senators and House members who have not fully supported his agenda. He will not put a good word out there for them. That is who Donald Trump is. Donald Trump wants support. Donald Trump wants loyalty and nothing else. And if you do not give him fealty, he will not act in your best interest. That is the bottom line. So could there be some type of Trump supporter revolt should Biden win? Yes. But it will be small. It will be short-lived. It will be contained. But if Donald Trump wins this election, there is going to be fear among the majority of Americans who, again, lean left because so many of the things that they have recently gained, so many of the assurances in their lives that they have come to rely on are going to be potentially removed. And it may not be immediate. It might be that Trump wins. But if that ACA decision comes down and Obamacare is repealed, that's going to be the trigger. That's going to be the catalyst. That will be the important moment because that's when there's going to be hope that's going to be held out that the Supreme Court will do the right thing and, and uphold the ACA. And when it becomes apparent that they are not going to act in the best interest of Americans, the majority of Americans, that will serve as the catalyst for any type of widespread revolt. Will it ever get to a civil war? I don't know. Because I, again, I don't think that 20 to 30 percent of Trump supporters is large enough to be any kind of adversarial force. You have to realize that if the ACA is struck down, a lot of those people that vote for Trump, they're covered by the ACA and they're going to lose their health insurance too. And so if, you know, if, if the left revolts against Trump, again, Trump supporters just don't have that much to stand on. There's not a lot of idealism there for them to stand on. What would they be fighting for? What would they be fighting for? To take healthcare away from people, that would be their cause. We don't like healthcare. Our president, blah, 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 blah. There's just not enough cause. I don't think that they would feel compelled to put their lives on the line for a 70-something-year-old president who at, at, at his best is slightly entertaining and at his worst is, is, is Hitler-esque in his, in his delivery of statements and in his divisiveness. I just don't think that they would have the moral standing, the passion, the motivation to put their lives on the line to go fight against a majority of Americans who are losing existential freedoms. So that is my pre-election episode. I hope there weren't too many numbers. I hope that it was engaging. I hope that I wasn't too preachy. 
Um, but I do feel like there's a lot at stake. I was nervous about recording this episode because as I read through, as I read the stats, as I read the articles, as I read everything, it has become so apparent how insidious the GOP strategy to restrict voting in this country is. Nobody should be okay with the idea that votes shouldn't count because they got there an hour late. We're living in that country. We're living in a country where we're not, we're not, we're going to silence people's voices because a ballot is an hour late. A ballot is a day late because the delivery method of choice failed them. You know, that's the country we're living in. And, and I'm worried. It's not okay to restrict voting. It's not okay to do that. You know, Americans are Americans. If you're an American citizen, you get to vote. Doesn't matter what your address is. Doesn't matter where you work. Doesn't matter what race, color, religion. Doesn't matter if you are an American. You deserve to vote as long as you're over 18. Maybe you should go to 16, but you deserve to vote. So I was really nervous because there's so much at stake here. In a way that a lot of, again, I don't think the Republicans feel it. I don't think the Trump supporters feel it. There is so much at stake here. The character of our country, as Joe Biden said, is, is on the ballot. Is America going to be a leader in the world? Or is it going to remain as in or go backwards? Last night, my fiance said one of the smartest things I've, I've heard anybody say. She said that the United States is a 37-year-old in a midlife crisis. They were great in high school. They were an all-star on their basketball team. They, 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 they had it all in high school. And then they tried to preserve that. And it didn't work. They got older. They didn't get better. And that's what America is. America is stuck. We have stagnated. This is the longest amount of time in American history that a substantive constitutional amendment has not been passed. Constitutional amendments are there so that America can stay current and America has not stayed current. We are faltering. We need to stop being the 37-year-old stuck in a midlife crisis. We need to start acting like an adult. We need to start understanding what our priorities are, what the right thing is, and we need to start understanding that, yes, sometimes decisions are painful, but they're the right decisions. Yes, they cost money. Yes, it will take a long time to achieve our goals. Yes, they're idealistic, but we need to get there and we're going to make the hard choices. I hope everybody goes and votes, regardless of side. Exercise, exercise your constitutional right, just like every American should be able to. Stay tuned for how you can hang out with the New Deal on Election Day. I'm going to try to figure something out, whether I live stream a little bit here or there, or, you know, just, you know, live tweet or whatever it may be. But I plan on staying up all night. We'll see how it goes. But stay tuned for how you can hang out with the New Deal on election night as the results come in. It's going to be nerve-wracking and I've been not in my stomach all night, but I'll, I'll be here. We've talked about the election, five things to be happy about. Please focus on those. Five things to worry about, though. Uh, worry about. Keep them in the back of your mind. Be prepared. Be ready. The dangers po posed in this election. Be ready. Thank you for listening to this episode. Stay safe. Wear your masks. COVID is the worst it has ever been. I do not say that sarcastically. It is literally the worst it has ever been. Wear your masks. Be careful. Vote, vote, vote. Thank you for listening to The New Deal. I appreciate you guys listening. Please, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, go check out The New Minute. I appreciate your support. Just throw me a like. Subscribe, please. It makes a huge difference for me. I love the conversations we've been able to have on, on those mediums. Please keep that up. Everybody have a great weekend. Do something fun. Do something distracting. And I will talk to you guys very shortly. Have a great night.